Totally uh, random thought, this morning's random thought. About 10 years ago, we as a church were trying to figure out what it meant and how to operate as a larger kind of church. And for a while, maybe a year or two, we used to talk about the Waterstone greeting so that when you were out at King Supers and you saw a person, they looked familiar and you were trying to figure out if you knew them from Waterstone, we'd have the Waterstone greeting, which was at Waterstone, we love God and we love others. Anyone remember that? Yeah, it, it never lasted too, too long. So <laughs> anyhow, would you uh, like to add 2.9 years to your lifespan? Okay. If so, take this quiz and keep track of your yeses. You ready? Here are the questions. Do you sleep eight hours per night, five nights per week? Do you move 30 minutes a day and by, uh, physical exercise? 30 minutes a day? Do you have at least three servings of vegetables a day? Have you not had unprotected sex with a stranger? Is the proportion of your waistline to your height twice your waistline is less than your height? I'll give you a minute to think. So, inches around the waist, double it, and it should be less than your height. All right? We short people have a real struggle here. All right. Number six. Do you have three good conversations with friends each week? And do you have a good friend you can count on in a bad day? Seven. Do you participate in faith-based community four times per month? Eight. Have you not smoked in five years? Nine. Do you want to live? until you're 90 years old. Those questions come from a book called The Blue Zones, written by Dan Buettner, who's a journalist for National Geographic. The way he wrote the book was that he embedded himself for 10 months around the nine civilizations around the world that have the longest living lifespans. By the way, do you know what community in America has the longest lifespan? Where would you guess? Yeah, everyone guesses Utah. No, not Utah. Loma Linda, California. Do you know whose headquarters is in Loma Linda, California? Seventh-day Adventists who practice the Sabbath. Interesting. Dan, in living with these communities, he, he came to see that all of the nine have these four common characteristics. First, they eat a plant-based diet. Second, they promote physical activity even and especially among the elderly. Third, they practice what he calls sacred ritual, which means they practice the Sabbath, rest, but they also connect themselves in their religion to something that's bigger than themselves. And then lastly, they are deeply rooted in community. Community is an overriding principle for everything they do. That's what the Blue Zones are about. Uh, after we, uh, I, I heard Dan Buettner speak at the National Conference for Mental Health uh, down in Orlando earlier this year. Went down there. I'm on the board with the Jefferson Center for Mental Health and was down there with some board members. One of the guys elbowed me actually during Dan's talk. Dan is a professing agnostic. He's not sure about this God thing. But he was quoting... I'm not kidding. I heard Genesis and Exodus quoted more in his talk than I have in many sermons. And as we were there listening to it, 
the person, one of the guys I was with, he elbows me and says, you should feel right at home here. This is like a church service breaking out. After the talk, we went out to dinner, and one of the women who, who we were with says this very amazing statement. He says, it se-, she said, it seems as if God is floating these ideas out to see if we will trust him for the good of our lives. It seems that God is floating these ideas out to see if we will trust him for the good of our lives. I thought that will preach. Here we go. We're in 1 Corinthians. Today we come to chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. We're going to read those verses in a moment. This is that part, as we heard in the video, that has to do with sex. But in this, the sex uh, chapters, there's this little text here, these 11 verses, that are also about relationships and how Christians treat each other with their money. Today's big idea has to do with greed. Christians and greed. So let's hear Paul's counsel. Uh, Let me just give a little bit of background before we actually read it too. What was happening is Paul had gotten a letter from Chloe's household in chapter 1 about the various problems that were in the church in Corinth. One of the problems in that church is that one Christian man was suing another Christian man. Evidently, he had defrauded him or, or uh, extorted him. The word uh, cheated in verse 8 has to do with uh, cheating of property or money. Not a, this is not a criminal situation that's going on. A civil case disagreement going on between two Christians, and they'd gone to public court. So with that background, let's read Paul's counsel to the church in Corinth about this specific situation involving greed, money, and winning. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such everyday matters... Do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and your sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thanks be to God for His Word. 
So, in Corinth, there in the marketplace, there was a place called the Bema Seat, which means the Seat of Judgment. It was right in the center of the marketplace. And what was happening is that one Christian brother was suing another Christian brother, and they took the case right to the marketplace, center of public life. You need to understand that in the Greco-Roman world, this was reality television. The galleries were packed. The lawyers were the celebrities. Tacitus says that lawyers could make 10,000 sesterces a case while their clerk made only 1,200. Apollius writes about how the, the Roman justicism was bent towards bribes and curved towards status, and he called the Roman judges, quote, gowned vultures. Cicero, the great writer of Rome, the Latin expert, he, he was writing and he said, uh, Roman system is bent towards bribes, curved towards justice, and I'm not above using them myself. You see, what was going on as this was playing out like a reality television show, this Christian friendship on display, this disagreement of the church for the whole world to see. Paul's reaction is immense. In fact, the very first word in chapter 6, verse 1, in the original language is dare, as in, how dare you? Paul is really stoked against this. He, he writes to put it down. He uses rhetorical questions, and you and I both know when you use rhetorical questions in our argument, he's really saying to them, shut up and listen. <laughs> and then he's, in verse 5, he writes, I say this to shame you. And it's the Greek word from where we get entropy. He's trying to break them down, change them, change their ways. He is really upset about this. And then he's going to go on and give instructions. Now, the way this text uh, kind of comes at us, uh, to steal a phrase from the great preacher Nick Lillo, he says, this is a Tootsie Pop text, uh, text. With a Tootsie Pop, you have the hard outer shell, which is the flavor that you want. But then what's on the inside of a Tootsie Pop? That chewy nugget. So this is a text where the hard outer shell is basically about this. Here's the big idea. Don't sue Christians in civil court. Don't take your brother and sister to court. Paul's going to give three reasons why. But then, underneath all of this is a Christian worldview, which gives shape to Paul's outside counsel. So there's a reason that we don't take Christians to, 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 to court. And it's the gospel worldview that's underneath Paul's counsel. So we're going to look at the Paul's argument, don't take Christians to civil court, and then we're going to look at the worldview behind his counsel, and I think behind his emotion in the text. All right. So Paul says, don't go outside with internal stuff between Christians. And that's important. Hear that. This is between Christians. He gives three reasons. The first reason is in verses 1 through 6, and I think it's a mind-blowing thing. He says that we in this room are competent enough to figure out how to fix our disputes. We are competent enough to figure out how to fix our disputes. Let's, let's go back to verses 1 through 6. Re read it with that in mind. If any of you has a dispute with one another, dare you take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Paul is alluding here to Daniel chapter 7 when in the new heavens and the new earth, Christians will somehow, some way, rule with Christ and help Christ figure out the judgments around the world. Did you know that? You are on retainer with Jesus right now. 
you will one day judge situations that involve the entire world. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases like everyday stuff that happens in a church? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Paul's point is simply this. Christians will one day, in some measure, be helping God judge the disputes of the world. Don't you think now we can figure out this stuff that goes on today? He's convinced we can. He's convinced that a a few little Christians resolving a dispute in a church will do a better job of that than a Harvard-trained civil lawyer in a public courtroom. You have to ask why. How can that be? Let me try to answer that. I think, first of all, Normal, everyday Christians who come together to resolve a dispute between Christians. That's important. Between Christians. It's about whom they know, and it's about what they have. Who do they know? Who do Christians know? Who do they pray to? Oh, God. Christians know God. Christians pray to God. Christians have relationship with God. What do they have? A Bible which defines reality, which gives truth for this time, which helps us look at life from an eternal perspective. And looking at life from an eternal perspective helps us make better decisions in the present, decisions that will last, be ultimately righteous, and in the best for both parties involved. You see, any Christian who comes knowing God and having His Word will do a better job of resolving conflict between Christians than any public courtroom. That's Paul's argument. I'd like to stand and make it a little deeper, push it a little harder. I think you get the best of both in a church. Let me explain. If you were, if you were having like a, a money issue, you were in a contract with another Christian here at Waterstone, and it didn't work out, they're both professing Christians, but one of them breaks the contract, we're saying you should go to the church first to try and resolve this before you, you stomp down to the to Taj Mahal and Jeffco. We're saying that if you do come, what would happen in that situation is you'd be connected with our elders, who is our governing body here at Waterstone. On our elder board, we have an insurance specialist. We have a a small business owner. We have a CFO at a Fortune 500 company. We have a professional counselor. We have a missiologist. We have two computer geeks, and we have two pastors who are along for the ride. What we're saying is, what I'm saying is in that wealth of experience, expertise, you have not only worldly wisdom, but you have worldly wisdom that is fueled by eternal perspective. And you will get a good and righteous decision from that group. One other thing is true. Not only do we have these, you know, the elder board, but we are, the pastoral staff is connected to experts around this congregation. Not long, a few weeks ago, I had a woman call me from Waterstone and said, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm leaving this company. They gave me a separation agreement. Do you know anyone I could talk to to help work through this separation agreement to make sure everything's above board? In 30 seconds, I had eight lawyers from Waterstone on my, you know, I have them on my speed dial. We have an incredible wealth of worldly wisdom in this body, but it's worldly wisdom fueled by eternal perspective. 
so that good decisions can be made. And Paul's point is, therefore, do not go to civil court to resolve disputes, financial disputes among the church. Go to the church first. Now, there may be times if resolve can't come or if one of the persons involved is not acting like a Christian, and certainly if they're not a Christian, that, that changes things. There may be times when you do have to go to civil court for the benefit of the person involved, that they learn consequences, that you love them by having them pay what they owe you. There, there are exceptions to the rule, but by and large, if it's one Christian and another Christian, go to the church first. Paul says, to work it out. So that means if you are a, a Christian business owner and you're in partnership with another owner and you reach philosophical differences and you want to part ways and it's messy, go to the church first. Don't take it to civil court. Seek Christian arbitration. If you are an employee of a Christian organization and you believe you're being wrongfully terminated, don't go to civil court first. Go to the church first. Seek Christian arbitration. If you are going through a divorce as two Christians, don't go to civil court first. You'll have to get some of it done there, but go to the church first if you can't agree on things. Have fellow Christians involved in making these important distinctions. That's Paul's counsel to Corinth and Waterstone. Here it is. Waterstone, we love God. We love each other. And we won't sue you. How's that for a greeting today? If you remember nothing else, love God, love each other, and I won't sue you. Okay, there we go. What happens though, if you can't get there? What happens if you can't, even with the church at work and our best resources, and frankly, what happens if even civil, what if you can't resolve it? That's verses 7 and 8. So we go on to Paul's second reason why we don't sue Christians in civil court. It's better to be wronged than to take your brother or sister to court. Now just let that sit in a minute. That is so countercultural to the American way. It is better to be wronged and to take your brother or sister to court. Listen to Paul's words in verses 7 and 8. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. In this verse, there are two reasons why it's better to be wronged than to take your brother to court. The first point Paul makes is if you have defeats or lawsuits in the church already between Christians, you're completely defeated. Why? Because you are no longer operating in the wisdom of the cross. Every Christian mind is shaped by the cross. What does that mean? That means that when, in order for us to enter relationship with Jesus Christ, what had to happen? Jesus had to let go of his reputation. Jesus had to let go of his heavenly wealth. Jesus had to be wronged on the cross in order for us to gain relationship with him. Jesus had to deny his rights. Jesus had to put down his status. Jesus let all of that go and he was wronged so that we could be declared righteous. 
That is the wisdom of the cross, and that is implanted into anyone who says, I follow Jesus. So we approach every situation, even a hard one, when someone wrongs us, the instinct for us is to say, I would rather be wronged than to take a brother or sister to court. Why? Because the cross formed me. And it not only forms our mindset, it forms our family relationships. Do you see in the text, in verses 5 through 8, the word brother occurs four times. It means brothers and sisters. So what happened at the cross is that Jesus formed our way of thinking, but he also formed blood relationship with every other Christian. Now, we say this quite a bit around Waterstone. You know, your relationship with Jesus, it's personal. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's you and Jesus in many ways, but it's never private. As soon as you become a follower of Jesus, guess what? You have brothers and sisters. You're part of a family. And that family is bonded by the blood of Christ. So if you are out there and you're wronged and your response is, I'm just going to take them to court to get what's mine, make them pay, you are dishonoring the blood bond of family that Jesus formed at the cross. You are not treating your brother and sister well. So Paul's argument is that when it comes to a disagreement in the body, when there's money involved between two Christians, we are, first of all, competent to figure out a just settlement within ourselves. And second, it is gospel right to think, I would rather be wronged than to take a brother or sister to reality television and settle it there. There's a third reason. So it's about our competency, it's about our way of thinking. We're willing to be wronged in a culture that's all about expressing our rights. The third is in verses 9 through 11. Pretty tough text here. And we'll just scrape the surface this morning. We're going to come back to it again in a couple weeks on August 2nd when we finish the rest of chapter 6 and talk about this sexuality piece. But take in these verses. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul's point, and we'll apply it to the greed aspect in just a moment, but his point is that when you come to know Christ, you get a new operating system. And that operating system is run by Jesus, our relationship with Him. It's, it's modeled after the cross, and it honors the family bonds that we have purchased by Christ's blood. It's a new operating system. We don't operate in the old operating system. Those verses were the old operating systems. There are ten sins on Paul's vice list, five of them sexual, five of them relational, and all of them about one thing, self-gratification. Paul's saying, look, when you were not a Christian, before you knew Christ, you were captured, your operating system was getting what I need, satisfying my appetites, whatever I need, I get. When you become a Christ follower, you have a new operating system that's about the cross and God's family. 
you were those things, not anymore. Live like what you are. Paul's saying, you have a new operating system. Live like it. So let's apply it to greed. Paul's saying, if money is your main operating system such that you would take another Christian to civil court, then you have every reason to ask whether you are a Christian or not. If money is your operating system. Paul's pushing it pretty hard. Let me tell a quick story, which kind of capsulizes all three of the hard outer shell, the three things Paul's talking about. Several years ago, there was an article in Leadership Journal, and it was written by a Christian businessman named Fred Smith, who's now in heaven watching us today. And uh, Fred was a, uh, uh, an elder in a church, and this situation broke out in a church with one of his uh, attenders, and uh, they, we'll, we'll change their names. We'll call them Ralph and Fred. Ralph and Fred were two Christians from different churches. For They started their own business, and for a while things were great. But after a couple years, they, because of different philosophies of doing business, needed to separate. Here's the truth. Here's what, what they approached this with. Ralph had put more money, startup, into the company. Fred had put more time into the company over the last few years. They tried and they tried and they tried to work it out to have a separation agreement. They couldn't reach agreement on how much money one should pay the other. And things got, well, let's say, testy. But they were committed believers and they did not want to drag the idea of Christian friendship and an internal dispute to the civil courts. So what they did was get two elders from each of their churches and they formed, what, a reconciliation committee. To, to do, and they sat down and they went through the books. They went through their stories. They went through every pertinent fact and detail. And they came back. They had two guys in the room and they decided that Fred did indeed owe Ralph $9,500. Fred was livid. Couldn't believe it. Thought, you know, he had worked that off in the time they'd been together. He stood up, was angry, talked about a lawyer, talked about he's leaving. And just as he was about to go to the door, Ralph says to Fred, wait. And Ralph says to Fred, Fred, my relationship to you as a brother is much more important than $9,500. So, you pay me what you think you owe me. And they left. And at the time of the publishing of that Fred Smith article in Leadership Journal, Fred had not paid Ralph a penny. But Ralph is living 1 Corinthians 6. It is better to be wronged than to take a brother to court. That's the hard outer shell. How in the world do you live that way? Where does that come from? What's the worldview behind those kinds of decisions and being able to take Paul's advice? Here's the chewy nugget. I think the Christian worldview in this case is about two things in the text. In verse 2 and in those verses where it talks about our competency, it says we will one day sit with the saints and judge the world. Here's my point. The first part of that worldview for a Christian is this. We live in the reality of eternity now. What does that mean? That means that every moment of our lives is invaded by the future. 
What does that mean? Can I be blunt? That means that one day, when we are walking on gold as if they were bricks, what freaking difference will $9,500 make? When we get there, Jesus will not be asking us about our bank account and about whether we got everything we felt we earned or deserved in this life. He will be asking us whether or not we carried the cross and honored his family. My friends, even the pagans get this, okay? Woody Allen said, if man is immortal, you have definitely overpaid for your carpet. What difference will $9,500 make a billion years from now? Christians are infected with future. So let me ask you a really hard question. When you are cut by the injustice of another brother or sister, do you bleed heaven? The second part of the worldview. Oh, oh, oh by the way. I think God floats these ideas out in front of us to see if we will trust him for the good of our lives. The second part of that chewy nugget is this. The first thing is Christians are infected with eternity. The second is that we hold the importance of, wisness, of a witness to be of highest good. In verse 6, Paul is really upset most about this, you're doing this in front of unbelievers. That has torqued him. You are playing all this out in front of unbelievers. He's making the point that when the world watches us carry out our family business, the family should look somewhat inviting to the outside world. There should be love. We should not be taking each other to court the authenticity of every word we say is backed by the way that we treat each other. So I have a really hard question for you. Waterstone, when you are cut by the injustice of another believer, do you show gospel? Are you willing to say, you've wronged me, but I won't take you to court. I won't respond in kind. Why? Because my mission is to show the world what the cross means. My mission, our mission, is to show the world what the cross means. Oh, I think God floats these ideas out among us to see if we will trust him for the good of our lives. So Waterstone, for the cross. As we come now to the table of the Lord, let's see, uh, servers get ready. In a moment, 
I want to read you one of the earliest Christian songs from the book of Philippians, and we're reading it as an invitation to the table for two reasons. One, the table, the Lord's Supper, is about family time. So one of the first things we must always do when we observe communion is make sure all our relationships in-house are good. (laughs) If I could say that we're not really wanting inside to take someone to court in here. (laughs) Are your accounts clean? Are your relationships with other believers good? Because we honor the family that was formed at the cross at this table. And if you are right now with another believer upside down, if you have hatred, if you have any kind of things that need reconciled, you need to do business with that first. Whether that's an agreement that you'll seek that person out after the service, phone call, letter, whatever, you're going to make things right. Or maybe it's someone sitting in here and you need to go to them now before the table because we honor the bonds that Jesus' blood made. For our family. The second reason we're reading this song is so that we can honor Jesus together. I remind you again, Jesus is the one who left behind status, wealth, reputation. He was wronged so that we could be declared righteous. We come honoring Him this morning. And I'd like to say that if you're here and you've never before expressed a desire to follow Jesus, never before told Jesus, Jesus, I'm yours, what better way to start that than to come to this table and as you take the, we ask you to take a piece of bread, rip it off, dip it into the cup, and take that and say, I'm yours. This is the table of home, of, the, of, of welcoming Jesus into your life this morning. So here's the song. These verses call us to the table this morning. Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing, By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, on the earth, in heaven, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as the servers come, the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it. And He said, This bread represents My body broken for you. As often as you eat it, Remember me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins as often as you drink it. Remember me. We invite you now to be with Jesus at his table. Come, come to the table of the Lord.